Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Attorney General William Barr went before Congress to testify about the president's budget request for the Department of Justice, but it didn't take long before Democrats started asking about the big elephant in the room, how long it's going to take for the Mueller report to be released. Attorney General Barr said that he would release a redacted version and it would be released within a week, which led everybody to just be on pins and needles for how long that's going to take. He said he was in a color code thing, so people knew exactly why certain redactions were made. We spoke to Sadie German. She's the Justice Department reporter for The Wall Street Journal for more on how William Barr's hearing went. This was a chance for the attorney general to discuss his budgetary priorities, but Democrats immediately turned to the Mueller report, and it was clear from the outset that the AG knew he had to sort of appease them somehow, and so he basically said, you know, I'm going to have this report available for delivery to Congress within a week. So we don't know exactly when he's going to be providing it to Congress, but we do know that he's making progress. Yeah, I know. I've already seen a bunch of speculation. Is there going to be a Friday night dump or, you know, something like that? Or will it be middle of next week? Everybody's just kind of raring to get their hands on this. And he's getting a lot of criticism. Uh, Obviously, nobody would have been happy with the rollout of the information of the report. But everybody really has uh, is taking a lot of issue with that four page summary that he put out, basically saying that there was uh, no collusion and basically no obstruction of justice, although that's part of the murky territory. And Democrats really want that full report. So he's taking his time to uh, go through some redactions. And that's what we expect to see within a week. Yes, that's right. He's planning to release what should be a pretty heavily redacted report. Basically, it's a 400 page report, but we do expect much of it to be blacked out. He's looking for things in particular like grand jury material that can't be released under law to the public. And then he's also looking for information on confidential sources and methods, information about people who are involved in an investigation but have not been charged with a crime, among other things. So he and his aides and a member of Mueller's team have been looking at this document for a couple of weeks now, and that's what we expect to see within a week. They even said they're going to color code some of the redactions with notes explaining why that's being redacted specifically. That's right. And I think that's an effort to allay concerns, particularly among Democrats, that they will just see a blacked out document with no explanation. Barr tried to allay some of those concerns by saying that he will color code the document. There was a lot of Democrats that were saying that Robert Mueller's team had provided summaries of certain parts of the entire report for uh, Mr. Barr to see, but he obviously didn't include that in, in the summary that he put out. What was his reasoning for that? Right. He said he did not want to release summaries, and particularly those summaries, because all of them had grand jury information present throughout them, so it would have required redacting anyway. And he said he didn't want to get into the habit of releasing a summary, especially with information that he wouldn't be able to legally release. What were Republicans doing during the hearing? Republicans tried to focus the hearing on the budgetary priorities that Barr had outlined, but there was also some commentary that about the investigation as being sort of a distraction, a waste of time, especially because we know the principal conclusions. And so some of the Republicans said that this was a sideshow by the Democrats for political point scoring. 
the next thing that's really going to happen is once the redacted report comes out, the collusion stuff, I think that will kind of start falling by the wayside. But everybody's going to really be focusing on the obstruction of justice because that's where Robert Mueller left it unclear. He said there's evidence to it. There's evidence against it. I'm not making the determination. You guys are. That's going to be the, the real focus there. And then after that comes all the spin, whether it be from Democrats and Republicans or the White House itself. Yes, I think the biggest, obviously, unanswered question that we have is why the special counsel's office was unable or chose not to come to a conclusion about whether the president obstructed justice and, consequently, why Barr decided to take it upon himself to make that decision. Barr obviously did not say anything about that. He said he's not releasing information piecemeal, but that is a major question that we expect and hope the report will answer. And uh, William Barr also said that he's going to be reviewing the conduct of the FBI's 2016 probe of the Trump team. Would it what happened there? So the Justice Department's Inspector General has, for about a year now, been investigating the origins of the Russia investigation and whether law enforcement officers overstepped their authority in to secretly surveil a Trump campaign advisor. So the Justice Department's already been looking at that, and he said that he expects some findings within a few months there. A little follow-up to William Barr's testimony before Congress. The very next day, he testified before a Senate subcommittee and had some interesting things to say about the Mueller report and everything that went into how the FBI looked into the Trump campaign. He actually said, I think spying did occur. The question is whether it was adequately predicated. And he said spying on a political campaign is a big deal. He later had to clarify in the hearing, I'm not saying that improper surveillance occurred. I'm saying that I'm concerned about it and looking into it. That's all. Miranda, tell us really quick what he means by these spying comments? What is he referring to? So Barr didn't specifically say what his concerns were, but he's referring when he mentioned spying on the camp, he could be referencing information that we just don't know yet because it's not been made public until they release this report. But there are three interconnected criticisms that conservatives have been making for a really long time about things that the government did during the 2016 presidential election and related to the Russia probe. So let's go through those. The main thing is the Steele dossier. This is the opposition research that Hillary Clinton and the DNC hired this company called Fusion GPS. And then they then subtracted to this guy called Christopher Steele. He's a retired British spy. And the whole point was to look into President Trump's ties with Russia. Steele then put together this dossier of stuff that was really alarming. Right. Basically from that, they said that it proves that Trump was doing some deals with Russia mm -hmm. and that he was susceptible to blackmail because of weird sexual things that were in there. If you remember, they said that there was prostitutes on a bed and they were peeing all over the place and, and Trump was there watching a tape of it. Yeah. So that that's how he was vulnerable to some blackmail. Really, the core of that is conservatives are arguing that the FBI inappropriately relied on this phony steel dossier to start as a basis to investigate the Trump campaign. Right. And so then from there, there was an informant during the summer of 2016, the FBI hired a confidential informant. He's a retired university professor, also based in Britain, and his name is Stefan Halper. He met actually with George Papadopoulos to try to see if he can finagle anything out of him. Obviously, Papadopoulos is one of the main figures in the Mueller report also. So if you remember, this was what President Trump called Spygate. Yeah, exactly. So there was that one. And then there was a third one that has to do with all of these FISA warrants. Carter Page was an aide to Trump. 
And he made a trip to Russia. And after the trip, the Steele dossier came out and they alleged that Carter Page was part of this whole Russia conspiracy. And that was what gave the FBI an opportunity to surveil him. And he has never been convicted of anything. Nothing was ever found. And he maintains that his civil liberties were violated. Yeah. The thing with this whole Mueller report being released is just it's going to keep going around and around and around. Nobody's going to be happy. Everybody's going to be looking for the slightest inkling of any type of obstruction of justice so Democrats can nail the president. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. One of the most interesting stories we did this week was that of the cold case factory. After the capture of the Golden State Killer happened, it exposed a lot of people to forensic genealogy, and a lot of cold cases have been solved using this technique, which combines DNA analysis and family tree building. One company who has been at the forefront of all of this, they've worked with several law enforcement entities, and they've had a lot of success with it. They've solved over 30 cold case murders so far just last year. That company is Parabon Nanolabs. We spoke to writer and journalist Sarah Weinman to talk about how Parabon has gotten so good at solving these cold cases using forensic genealogy. And the bigger question, how will this crime solving game changer hold up in court? We start off by talking about the cold case murder of April Tinsley that was solved using forensic genealogy. April Tinsley, her story and her murder really upset me from the time that I first heard about it, just because it felt to me such a travesty that her case had not been solved. There were what seemed to me so much evidence. There were the notes. There was physical evidence. There was obscene material left at the scene. There were instances happening soon after her murder and then 16 years later in 2004. And in a way, just like the Golden State Killer, when there was so much evidence and no sign of a culprit, the frustration really mounts, not just for people on the outside who are paying attention to these cases, but of course for law enforcement. And so even as scientific technology becomes more sophisticated, so for example, with April's murder, there was no DNA evidence that was tested because those techniques were not commonly used until a few years later. She disappeared in 1988. So this, as you right. said, this was before these methods had really improved. There was DNA testing, but you needed so much material and it was so prohibitively expensive that it just wasn't practical for police detectives and crime labs to do this. Now you can just test the tiniest amount of material. And so the possibilities for figuring out who a suspect might be are all the greater. And so what interests me also about April's case, aside from just feeling a personal connection to it, was the fact that when the culprit was finally caught, It was through this forensic genealogy method, especially as employed by this company, Parabon Nanolab, and that there had already been a history between the company and law enforcement. They'd used a different technique called snapshot phenotyping, and that got them partway, but it didn't get them to the finish line in that they couldn't arrest a suspect. And then when Parabon came back and say, we're now doing genealogy testing with a forensic eye so that maybe we can catch potential killers, would you be interested? And of course, the Fort Wayne folks said yes. And through these genealogical tools, they were able to focus attention on two brothers. And based on further DNA testing that they were able to do in, in-house in the lab, they were able to arrest a man named John Miller, who'd been essentially living in the community this entire time. 
He had never raped or killed anyone else, only April. And because of the amount of evidence against him, he was able to plead guilty and will essentially serve the rest of his life in prison. Yeah, I mean, he was hiding in plain sight. Neighbors always felt he was a little weird. He was kind of strange, often angry. He didn't marry. He kept to himself. Let's move on to a little bit more about Parabon Nanolabs. As I said, they've helped solve at least... 30 cases last year. I know the number has gone up since then a little bit. Every week I check up on them just because I'm interested to see what kind of work they're doing. And I feel as if every day another cold case is being solved or at least being reported on as being solved and Parabon is mentioned as helping to bring this about. Describe to us forensic genealogy. How does it work? And just explain it for people who are still a little unaware of it. Genealogy has been around a while, and it sort of grew out of what was initially called, and still called, genetic genealogy. And so it's essentially people who want to figure out their ancestry and build family trees in combination with DNA testing. So there are big private companies like Ancestry.com and 23andMe where you can send in a sample of your own DNA, it's usually saliva or from a cheek swab, and you get results back that give an idea of general demographics, where your ancestors might have hailed from, and also getting more specific about possible common ancestors with other people. And so genetic genealogy has helped in a whole slew of different types of cases, looking for missing heirs, finance-related things, but also in terms of identifying John and Jane Doe's. Those are people who have been found dead or murdered, suspicious circumstances, and they've never been identified. And so in the genealogy community, people were really aware that these techniques could potentially be used to solve cases and to help figure out culprits. But there was a real ethical quandary that should family history be used this way. And it really took the Golden State Killer case catching Joseph D'Angelo, who again was someone who hid in plain sight, who after 1986 has not been found to have committed any heinous crimes along the lines of the ones that he did from the mid to late 70s on through 1986. But to your point, that was some of the early conversations that were happening when news of the Golden State Killer came out, the ethical quandary of it. These people signed up to have their DNA on these websites. They didn't sign up to help police catch killers or link your your second cousin to something like this. And a lot of these uh, DNA companies, uh, genealogy sites, changed their privacy settings so that people knew that it was a possibility that law enforcement would be using these databases. The main company in particular that made those changes and the one that was really under scrutiny after the arrest of the suspect in the Golden State Killer case was one called GEDmatch. And that, unlike Ancestry of 23andMe, which are private databases, this is a public database. It's for free. It's accessible to anyone. And what it does is essentially taking a translation of your DNA sequence, sort of like a code, and you can upload it and that will produce possible names of people who are related to you. What law enforcement did is they took this code of the unknown suspect for the Golden State Killer case and uploaded it to GEDmatch, and it produced a series of names. And based on that, they then did further investigation and were able to get a warrant for DNA belonging to D'Angelo, tested it, and there was a match. And so once that happened and the announcement of the arrest happened, then there was a sense in the genealogy community that it gave them permission and cover to go ahead and use their techniques in a more concerted way 
for the solving of cold cases. And so here we are just about a year after D'Angelo was caught and arrested and dozens upon dozens upon dozens of cold cases have now seen resolution thanks to forensic genealogy. And so what I also found is that as I was hearing about these stories, this one company, Parabon Nanolabs, kept reappearing over and over and over again. Alabama specifically just had another cold case solved. It was a decades-old double murder that actually used the services of Parabon Nanolabs, and that just happened uh, very early this month. And a lot of it is due in part to Cece Moore. She's the lead genealogist for Parabon. Tell us how she got involved in all this. Moore is a fascinating and complex woman, and I am really interested in her story. She had begun life as an actress and as a singer, and genealogy was a hobby. And then as often happens, the acting and singing work can sometimes dry up as a woman approaches the ages of 40, because Hollywood is not always kind. And so she decided to pursue genealogy in a more concerted way and got very interested in the application of genealogy research and DNA testing. And she's really become the go-to media person when people need to know about how forensic genealogy works. Parabon and the woman I spoke with who works there, the director of bioinformatics, Dr. Ellen Graytuck, she had told me that they were getting interested in what forensic genealogy could do and how it could be applied to the work that they were already doing, especially in terms of taking DNA and trying to build out composite sketches or what potential eye color or hair color of somebody might look like. And so when they were seeing what was happening in the genetic genealogy community, and I think for them too, that they kept seeing some of the same names reoccur over and over. It's a very, very small community. There are only a handful of people, and especially a handful of women, who have the wherewithal and the expertise to do this kind of work in the way that C.C. Moore does this kind of work. And so they kept seeing her name occur. They kept seeing her. So they started talking, and something was going to happen anyway. But then, of course, when the Golden State Killer case got resolved, it became much more critical and it became much more of a possibility that they could work well together. And so they did formalize that deal and CC joined on as a full-time employee, as did a handful of other genealogists who work with her. They just have been doing such tremendous work ever since. Totally. The next phase of this is now how these things will hold up in court. We're going to see that happen with the Golden State Killer case. A lot of the cold cases that Parabon Labs has solved, either the suspects had either passed away or they've already been committed of other crimes, so they're already in jail. This is going to be the next part of it. How it was explained to me, and I do buy this thinking, is that Parabon in particular views forensic genealogy as a tool that can help point towards a possible suspect, but it can't be the thing that points to the suspect. So the way I thought of it for myself was this was like a presumptive test, but you still have to confirm this presumption and confirmation only comes from the actual testing of DNA, the actual matching of this DNA profile to a suspect within a minuscule amount of probability. I view forensic genealogy as being kind of at the stage where DNA testing itself was about 30 years ago was this new technique. It's prohibitively expensive. So most government agencies and crime labs are not going to be using it unless there's a real need or it's like a last resort. Each analysis costs upwards of $5,000 that Parabon does. So they do get expensive, but it's just a fascinating look into how far we've come with DNA 
This forensic genealogy method now seems to be a game changer in crime solving. And it's just going to be interesting to see how this continues to progress and, and how much more we get out of this. Sarah Weinman, crime writer, journalist, author of The Real Lolita, The Kidnapping of Sally Horner. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. All right, that's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.